I'd like us to turn to the word of the Lord. Can we, if you brought your Bibles with you? During these Sunday morning services, we're looking over the summer months at the book of Hebrews. So last week, Chris kicked us off talking about the superiority of Christ based on chapter one. I'm going to move on to chapter two. And the passage that I wanted to draw your attention to is chapter two of the book of Hebrews, reading from verse one through to verse four. Now, before we read this passage, again, it's so important for us to understand the context. Because everything that you read in the Bible has a context. And the thing is, a text that is taken out of context becomes a pretext. And problems always arise if we take certain scriptures, we remove them out of their context, and seek to make them say something that maybe God has not intended. So it's always important to understand something of the context. And the book of Hebrews deals in its essence with the superiority of Christ. Comparing and contrasting between the old covenant with the new covenant. The old covenant with its types and its shadows, its law, its priesthood. And all that went on with the sacrificial system there in the days of Moses through to the coming of Christ. The temple worship, the ordinances of worship. But then we have the new covenant based on better promises of which Christ himself is the superior son who came as a superior servant offering a superior sacrifice in a superior sanctuary and thus offering a superior salvation. So why go back? And that's the challenge, Chris mentioned it last week, that's one of the reasons why the letter was written. Because there were those who had entered into the fullness of the revelation of Christ, and yet because of opposition and persecution, they had slid back. And Paul talks about this. The writer of Hebrews talks about this, talking about meat and talking about milk. The difference between the Hebrew church and the Corinthian church is that the Hebrew church had gone on to meet, but because of issues within their own hearts, had slidden away, had drifted away to the point that they needed milk all over again. Unlike the church of the Corinthians, which because of strife and tension and all sorts of division, had never risen above the milk level, The Hebrew church here was one that had had the meat, but had slipped away, thus needing milk all over again. So this is what the writer records for us. Therefore, we must pay more closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now this is the first of about six warnings that we have in the book of Hebrews concerning paying more careful attention to what we have heard. 
The first warning is the dangers of drifting from the word. The sixth warning is the dangers of denying the word. So when it comes to backsliding, very rarely does it ever happen overnight. It is a gradual process. A heart can be on fire one minute, but it doesn't grow cold the next morning. It is a gradual process of indifference, disobedience, lukewarmness, whereby a person starts to drift. And unless those issues are addressed, they end up denying and falling away. And the writer of Hebrews talks about this in chapter 6, about the errors and the warnings that the Bible gives us about discarding the word of the Lord. So here we have the first of these six warnings. He says, we must pay more closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. And the authority and the supremacy of the message lies in the revelation of the messenger. Under the Old Testament, it was through Moses and angels, through the earthly priesthood given Aaron being the high priest in the days of Moses. And the word of the Lord would come through that ministry. But there is a greater ministry that has come. It is through Jesus Christ. And the greatness of our salvation rests upon the greatness and the glory of the one through whom that salvation is given. So therefore we must never lose touch with the fact that we have a greater responsibility under the new covenant than what they did under the old. If God punished everything that went wrong under the new, or rather the old covenant, then how much more will he hold us to account under the new covenant? We tend to think, well, under the Old Testament, God was very angry and he punished everybody. But now under the new covenant, God's this grandfather figure that just lets us off the hook and turns a blind eye to sin and just wants to be nice to us all. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the new. It is the same revelation. Jesus, as it says at the back end of this book, is the same yesterday, today and forever. God hasn't changed. The difference being is that the manifestation of the fullness of who God is, is revealed in Christ. Christ being the exact representation of the divine being of God. A carbon copy as it were. So Jesus therefore can boldly proclaim that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father speak. If you've watched me go, then you've seen the Father move. If you've seen miracles, then that is my heart. That is the heart of the Father. So as we look at this passage of Scripture here today, it comes at a very important point in the unfolding of the letter. In chapter 1, the writer talks about the superiority of Christ, firstly, over the prophets... Christ being the final word. God has nothing more to say to us other than what is said in and through the person of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean to say that there isn't a place for the gifts of the Spirit and the present reality of what God is saying to us, but it is Christ himself who is that message. There's nothing more to add to Jesus or take away from him. It is a complete and final revelation from God and God speaks to us 
through Jesus in these last days. Under the Old Testament, it was through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, from his ascension through to his return, God speaks was by his son. It's a complete revelation and it's a continuous revelation. But the message is Jesus. You take Jesus out of church and the church ceases to have any influence or purpose. If Jesus is not the centre of our teaching, our ministry, the words that we bring, if Jesus is not at the heart of the church and its ministry and vision, then we're just playing simple religious games. Let us keep Christ at the centre of all things. Christ superior over the prophets and also in chapter 1 over the angels. It was through the angels under the Old Testament that the administration of the law of God was given. They were the mediators of the law. But the writer says there is one greater than the angels. There is one that the angels worship. There is one that is higher than the angels. And his name is Jesus. So why go back to the Old Testament? Why go back to all those ceremonies? Why go back to how things worked in the days of Moses? When there is one who is greater amongst us, why drift away? Well, there were many reasons for that, and one of them, for this church, was persecution. They were being ostracised, criticised, undermined because of their faith in the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. So therefore, it's only natural that when you face pressure that you want to take the foot off the gas, you want to slide back to where the comfort zone is found, you want to discard that which causes offence and just live a peaceful life. But God doesn't call us to live a quiet life, does he? Yes, peace with and for men, but we're called to stand up for what we believe. So there is this warning that's given to the early church, as indeed it comes to us here today. The writer is talking about this great salvation, and he gives us four signs or witnesses that confirm the authority of God's word. It says here, doesn't it, very clearly, that this message was first declared by the Lord. Jesus himself is witness number one to this great salvation. Witness number two are those who heard him, the believers, the church. Witness number three are the signs and wonders done not only by Christ but also by the apostles and prophets and also, fourthly, the gifts of the Spirit. All of these are witnesses to the truth of the authority and power of our great salvation. And I believe that these witnesses are still as real and as relevant as they are back then, today. The truth of the word of God. Christ himself, the witness of the church. The power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and his gifts displayed amongst us. All this bears witness to our great salvation. It's not just our salvation. It's our great salvation. It's a great gift from a great God. God saves great people and turns them into great servants. You're a great company this morning with a great God, with a great hope and a great future. God has given you the great gifts of his spirit. 
These are the signs and the evidences of our great salvation. It's interesting that it talks here about not drifting away from the word of God. That we must be more diligent, pay more closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. So what happened to Israel can happen to us. In fact, in chapter 3, the writer says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. We tend to think, well, Israel, they just rebelled and ran out of faith and didn't do what God wanted. And we're safe and secure. Well, the Bible is a lot more clear on that than what we're very often comfortable with. The fact of the matter is, if it can happen to them, it can happen to us. The difference is, is that the word of the Lord has made itself flesh amongst us. God incarnate through his son, Jesus Christ. So God can not only save us, but he can keep us. In other words, none of this should fill us with fear as though any moment now we're just going to fall out of heaven. And our names tipexed out of the book of life. If we keep our hearts before the Lord, then the Bible says in Jude, not only are we kept for Jesus Christ, but also we are to keep ourselves for Jesus Christ. So there's no fear if we walk in faith, love and obedience. But Timothy received an exhortation from his apostolic father, Paul. You see, we're talking about the theme of drifting. Now that is a picture from the world of the mariner. A boat drifts if it has no anchorage. It drifts if the captain is falling asleep at the wheel. It drifts if the crew are not paying attention. If the anchor has not been lowered, it'll drift. It doesn't have to do anything. It just simply allows the tidal flow to carry wherever that tidal flow will take it. And that's the picture. It's a subtle, it's a deceptive, it's a process that often takes people by surprise if they are not paying more closer attention to what they have heard. And Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 1 and verse... 19 of the first chapter, the first epistle. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So the picture then goes back to a similar picture painted by the writer to the Hebrew church. Shipwreck. How do ships get wrecked? Well, by allowing themselves to be tossed to and fro not paying attention to the warning of the lighthouse, the captain asleep at the wheel, the crew not diligent and aware of the risks that surround them, the wind and the waves. But it says here that if we reject faith and a good conscience, we may run the risk of making shipwreck of our faith. A clear conscience... And perfect faith are the two anchors that keep us embedded in the person of Jesus. This is a picture that's painted. And I was reading in the book of Acts, in chapter 27, where we have Paul 
encountering a shipwreck. On his final trip, suddenly the wind and the waves start to blow, and suddenly the ship appears to be doomed. And Paul takes charge, doesn't he? And he says, this is what you need to do. And he spoke to the centurion and he said this. He said, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Because they wanted to throw everything overboard. They wanted to do what very often we do when we're faced with trials and jump overboard because that might be a safer option. But Paul says, look, unless they stay in the ship, they can't be saved. Now, this is a literal comment, isn't it? It's a literal storm with a literal boat. But there's also a spiritual principle, I believe, that if we're going to be assured of our salvation, you've got to stay in the boat. Not jump over the side of the boat. Not run for cover. Not throw the oars out and go for a swim. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now is not the time to jump ship. Now is the time to hoist the sails. Now is the time to batten down the cargo, to stay focused. And we know that from Paul's ministry and testimony, yes, there was a shipwreck, but those who were in the boat were saved and the gospel advanced. It's a similar picture around this drifting, this shipwreck process. But let's go back to the passage here because we're given yet another passage in Hebrews 6 which again reminds us of the importance of being anchored. It says here, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, this is a wonderful picture. This mass man of the Old Testament who we read of in connection with Abraham. He was the king of Jerusalem during Abraham's day. And what the writer says is, is that as Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek as one who was greater, so therefore we have a great high priest through whom we pay our offerings to the Lord. The spiritual sacrifices that are part of our covenant of grace with the Lord. But the writer here says that we have this sure and steadfast hope. It is the anchor of the soul. Now, what does an anchor do? Well, it holds things secure. It prevents a boat or a ship from drifting. The recipients of this letter were drifting. The undercurrent of wrong doctrine was carrying this church congregation down the stream. That's why we need to be reminded, as indeed they were reminded, that we have no hope. We have an anchor for the soul that is firm and secure. But unlike most anchors which tend to go downwards, this is an anchor that goes upwards. It goes in through the curtain, the inner place, It enters where Jesus has gone before us as our forerunner or prodomos in the Greek. Prototype is something that is made as an example of what will be made later. So we have prototypes, don't we? But here we have is the forerunner, the prodomos, 
Jesus goes into heaven, yes, on our behalf, but also to prepare a way for us. This is the wonderful truth. This is where our souls should be anchored in an understanding of where Jesus not only has gone, but also where Jesus is. Because the Bible says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is not twiddling his thumbs in heaven, just waiting for the date that he's going to return back to planet earth. He ever lives to intercede for us. And he entered into this heavenly sanctuary, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood. He entered a heavenly, not an earthly sanctuary. He now is a priest with an eternal priesthood, as both king priest. Jesus' ministry was not ordained on the basis of law, as it was for Aaron under the Old Testament, but on the basis of a promise that God gave and the fact that God then sealed that promise with an oath. God swore by himself, because normally if you swear by something or someone, you usually draw upon the authority of someone who is greater. But when God swears, who does he swear by? Who is greater than God? There isn't anyone. So he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to promise you this, and I'm going to seal it with an oath. And nothing and no one can break that oath. That's why Paul would write, and he would say that there's nothing on heaven, on earth, demons, angels, past, present, future. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing... There's not a devil in hell or an angel in heaven that can stand in the way of you receiving the fullness of God's purpose, his mercy, his grace, and his love. But he is our king priest. The priests of the Old Testament were priests after the order of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. But Jesus was not appointed according to Levitical standards of ministry. He was appointed not on the basis of law, but on the basis of promise. And Melchizedek, who is this wonderful Gentile priestly figure, who was a king of Jerusalem, actually becomes the ministry after which Jesus comes. And he lives forever. Jesus' ministry is forever. His priesthood is eternal. Jesus is not simply a priest. He is a king and a priest. Hallelujah. No wonder our salvation is great. Aren't you glad it's great this morning? Aren't you glad it works? Aren't you glad that you don't have to go through the motions of annual reminders of sin? Aren't you glad that we don't have to bring a dead sheep and put it at the front of the church and suddenly our sins are covered up but guilt still remains? Aren't you glad you've got a clear conscience this morning? Before the Lord, aren't you glad that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin? Aren't you glad that you can stand totally and utterly forgiven, free and totally righteous in the presence of Almighty God? The devil has no hold on your life this morning. He has no accusation that stands up in a court of law. The devil is silenced and you're saved. This is the promise that we have. So the source of our hope is Jesus. The signs of our hope. What is this great salvation? Well, it's salvation. Complete and total. Not a bit of you is saved. 
and the rest is left to rot. Salvation is spirit, soul and body. It brings security. It brings strength. I love what it says. That we can approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. So that in our time of need we might receive every good and perfect gift to strengthen us during those seasons of trial. We can approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. Unlike the Old Testament, when that high priest went into that holiest of all once a year, the nation stood in awe, wondering whether God would accept that sacrifice. Jewish tradition says that during the time when that high priest was in that holiest of all, there was silence in Israel. And the silence was only broken once that high priest returned out. In fact, such was the holiness of that sanctuary that when the high priest went in, he had to have a rope chained to his ankle. Because what would happen if he was struck down in the presence of the Lord? No one else could go in, so that would mean they could just reign in that priest. Such was the fear. No one dared even touch that mountain on the pain of death. But the Bible says now, with boldness and with freedom of speech, we can approach the throne of grace. So has God lowered his standards? No. God has raised his saints. God has not removed all the bad bits. He said, look, you can come into my presence Not on the basis of your righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. We have this boldness, not on the basis of our merit, but on the basis of God's faithfulness. You are bold because you are in Christ. The old is gone. Behold, all things have become new and all things are of God. That's what makes you bold. It's not you and your flesh and your ego that gives you credibility in God's presence. It's the fact that you died in Christ and the life that you now live, you live unto the Lord by the power of the gospel. That's the word of the Lord. So there's no room for boasting in the flesh. The flesh counts for nothing. The flesh is dead. What we boast in is the righteousness that is a gift to us. So anyway... My time has come to an end here today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) Somebody's praying at the front. (laughs) Hallelujah. Who said hallelujah? (laughs) Bad timing. No, that's fine. (laughs) We must pay more closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away. Watch your drifting. Watch the drifting. How do we know if we're drifting? Well, change of attitude, becoming a bit more cynical, maybe unforgiveness seeps into our thinking, maybe we become colder in our hearts. The things that caused passion to arise suddenly no longer ignite faith. Little things like that. It's never the big issues that cause people to drift. All it takes is for a few wrong choices and you can go off at a tangent and end up a million miles away from the Lord. But even if, like the prodigal found, you feel as though you're a million miles away from God, one prayer and you're back in the family. One prayer and you're back. Turn around, repent, and God welcomes you back into the fold. Amen? Well, let's pray together, shall we? Thank you very much this morning. 
And I pray that you all have a blessed day and a blessed holiday during your time here. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths of your word. Bless every single person from the youngest to the oldest here today. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you for this great salvation. We thank you for this unmerited gift. We thank you for this undeserved grace. We thank you, Lord, that you poured out everything. But it's not because of who we are. It's because of who you are and who you remain to be. So God, today we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.